Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now at the beginning of our fifth season, and we remain just as excited as ever to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and to sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here are issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, heart issues, and more. So listen in today for our episode on climate change, and we're going to focus in on how is climate change changing our everyday lives and our health. Well, it's undeniable that the effects of human-caused climate change are happening right now. There seems to be almost universal agreement among scientists and pretty much among others that the earth will continue to warm and the effects will be profound. Indeed, we're seeing some of those now. Effects that scientists had long predicted would result from global climate change are now occurring over and over again, such as sea ice loss, accelerated sea level rise, and longer, more intense heat waves. And we here in Texas can attest to that. In fact, some changes, such as droughts, wildfires, and extreme rainfall, are even happening faster than scientists previously had assessed. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that would be the IPCC, which is the United Nations body established to assess the science related to climate change, modern humans have never before seen the observed changes in our global climate, and some of these changes are irreversible over the next hundreds to thousands of years. The severity of effects caused by climate change will depend on the path of future human activities. More greenhouse gas emissions will lead to more climate extremes and widespread damaging effects all across our planet. But if we can reduce some of those emissions, we may be able to avoid some of the worst effects. So while Earth's climate has changed throughout its history, the current warming is happening at a rate not seen in the past 10,000 years. And again, according to the IPCC, Since systematic scientific assessments began in the 1970s, the influence of human activity on the warming of the climate system has evolved from theory to well-established fact. Climate change, together with other natural and human-made health stressors, influences human health and disease in numerous ways that we're going to unpack a lot of that today. And some existing health threats will intensify and new health threats will emerge. And not everyone is equally at risk. More important considerations include age, economic resources, as well as location. So some of the important climate change facts are the world is now 1.2 degrees warmer than it was in the 19th century, and the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has risen by approximately 50%. Earth stores 90% of the extra energy in the ocean. And in 1896, a seminal paper by Swedish scientist 
predicted that changes in the atmospheric carbon dioxide levels could substantially alter the surface temperature through the greenhouse effect. And now, of course, that's happening. The direct damage costs to health are estimated to be between 2 to $4 billion per year by 2030. And that's probably outdated already. Uh, another fact is that zero-carbon solutions are becoming competitive across economic sectors, representing approximately 25% of emissions. And by 2030, zero-carbon solutions could be competitive in sectors representing over 70% of global emissions. And the area covered by sea ice in the Arctic at the end of the summer has shrunk by approximately 40 to 50% since 1979. So, if you care about your own health, you should care about climate change. It's not an option. Climate change is not always easy, though, to wrap our heads around. It can seem distant, far away, or perhaps less urgent than many of the other challenges that we face day to day. Especially today, as we face a global pandemic, or as we're getting over the global pandemic, and as we are facing uh, wars and other skirmishes in different parts of the world, it may not appear to be an immediate threat, like the wars in Israel and COVID-19 or other potential health issues. However, the warming planet has impacts that are pervasive, that are immediate, and that endanger our health and safety, and we cannot afford to wait any longer to act. Climate change can lead to adverse health outcomes in both direct and indirect ways. Severe storms and heat waves are sudden, but they can be deadly. And longer-term impacts, such as increased heart disease, respiratory complications from worsened air quality, increased incidence of vector-borne disease, and reduced access to clean water and healthy food are more difficult to understand and, again, more difficult to wrap our heads around. But the true breadth of the impact of climate change on health cannot be reduced to one single number. According to a survey about climate change conducted by the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Washington Post, 7 in 10 adults are worried that climate change will cause harm to the health of people living in the U.S., and a majority think that businesses, energy companies, and state governments are doing way too little. Now, this is a lot. But here today to help us understand this more and unpack some of this are two experts who are going to make us smarter. With us today, we have Lisa Patel. Lisa is the executive director of the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, and she is clinical associate professor of pediatrics at Stanford School of Medicine. Lisa is also a member of the executive committee of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Environmental Health and Climate Change. Lisa received her B.S. in biology from Stanford and her medical degree from John Hopkins School of Medicine. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Thank you for having me, Bernice. Thank you. Our other guest is Juanita Constable. Juanita is a senior climate and health advocate at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and they are a great friend to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. NRDC has been with us from the beginning, and we greatly appreciate them. Juanita uh, has more than 15 years of professional experience in communicating about the impacts of climate change. And in her current role, she helps advance climate adaptation solutions to the threats of extreme heat and other climate-related health hazards. Juanita's efforts 
are particularly focused on protecting worker health and safety from heat and integrating equitable heat preparedness into federal and state policies and programs. Welcome, Juanita. We're so glad that you could make time to be with us today also. I'm delighted to be back, Bernice. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you all. We're going to start um, out with the questions, and we'll probably have to break here shortly. But I want to start out uh, with you, Lisa. What are some of the most significant health impacts of climate change that you have observed with the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health and at Stanford's Pediatrics? I think what's important for people to understand is that climate change will leave no life stage unaffected, no organ system unaffected. Um, The way that climate change will play out will be different in different places depending on the individual, but all of us um, and our health are going to be affected by climate change. An argument actually that I had a chance to make with my colleague Alex Rabin in the New York Times, where we call climate change the single greatest determinant of health for a child born today. Um, We say that because when we burn fossil fuels, we do two things at once. We release a uh, pollution called PM2.5, which are these tiny little particles that we now know even crosses the placenta, um, enters the fetus before that fetus has even taken first breath, ends up in their lungs, their brain, their liver. Um, And then they come out and they continue to breathe that polluted air from the burning of fossil fuels. Um, And then the second thing that fossil fuel pollution does is it causes global warming. When we talk about what the health effects of climate change are going to be, there's just a litany. So whether we're talking about worsening heat waves that we know affect infants, the elderly, those with chronic medical conditions, those with housing insecurity, outdoor workers, the incarcerated, um, harder, um, either because they don't have the ability to adapt to those conditions or because they're physiologically more susceptible to things like heat illness, heat stroke, um, cardiovascular events, for example, and death. Um, We worry about worsening wildfires. So we're seeing more wildfires at what we call the urban interface So those big, enormous plumes of smoke that um, places like New York encountered, it has become yearly for us here in California. My son is five years old, and four out of the five years of his life, he's been breathing that toxic pollution that we think is five times more toxic than regular air pollution. What that's going to mean for their health moving down the road, we don't know, but um, the data we have from firefighters is quite concerning. Um, Longer allergy um, seasons and placing more people um, at risk for worsening allergies over the time because we have altered um, when those those, um, allergens and pollen are around in the population. So we are seeing worsening allergy seasons. And and then we can go on as the conversation goes on. The list can go on and on, um, but but we can save time for that down the road. Indeed. And we're going to go to break. But when we return from the break, Lisa, I do want to unpack with you a little bit more something you said, and that is about how the PM2 particles are are crossing the placenta. I want to unpack that and kind of connect the dots for our guests. But we'll be right back on the other side with Dr. Lisa Patel uh, with Stanford School of Medicine and with Juanita Constable with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you all. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. 
Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. And our other sponsor is the Weston A. Price Foundation. Based on the research of nutrition pioneer Dr. Weston Price, whose studies established the parameters of human health and determined the optimum characteristics of human diets. The Weston A. Price Foundation is a member-supported organization dedicated to restoring nutrient-dense foods to the modern diet. And they are about to celebrate their annual conference for 2023 called Wise Traditions, where thousands of attendees gather for learning, demonstrations, and exhibits, and the great food that's prepared in the method that Dr. Weston had determined. For more information and to register for the Wise Tradition Conference, Conference, which is October 20th through 22nd, visit wisetraditions.org. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today to our show on climate change, focusing in on how is climate change changing our everyday lives. And we are back with Dr. Lisa Patel with Stanford Medical School and Juanita Constable with the Natural Resources Defense Council. And again, thank you all for being with us. Now, before the break, Lisa, you were telling us about some of the ways that you've seen significant health impacts caused by climate change in your work. And you mentioned something I want to help connect the dots for our listeners, and that is you're saying that you're seeing the the particulate matter cross the placenta and be shown in newborn babies. How do they tell that? How do they know that that is happening? And then when the newborn gets here, what are the immediate impacts? Because I think that's just a little bit more difficult to wrap our heads around than are the effects of like heat waves and things of that nature. I think what we're beginning to understand, I think many of us thought that the placenta was this perfect little capsule that kept a developing child pretty safe from its external environment. And what we're beginning to understand that this was done from pathology reports from um, fetuses that uh, weren't going to make it. Uh, they just basically looked at the tissue from those fetuses and found evidence of that, that fossil fuel pollution within those fetuses. What it means in terms of their long-term health after children are born Um, We have very good data to show that children that grow up in areas that are more polluted because of structural factors like um, redlining and racism, where we place our polluted industries closer to communities of color and communities living in poverty, those children are at higher risk for things like asthma. And this should not surprise us because when kids are breathing that polluted air during a period of time when their lungs are developing rapidly, pound for pound, they're breathing in more of that toxic pollution because children breathe faster. They're more exposed to this toxic material that basically sets up the, the kind of the equivalence of inflammation throughout our bodies. So the lungs are one of the first hits, but we know that chronic exposure to this particulate matter pollution from burning fossil fuels also places us for a host of other problems like 
diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and premature death as well. But for a baby that's that's born and, and where you all have observed uh, the particulate matter crossing over, do those babies enter the world with some particular health issues? Or Yeah, that, that's hard to know, right? Um, when most babies, when they're born initially, um, they may not show respiratory distress in the beginning, um, but it may be that down the line, because their lungs have been exposed to that pollution, it does place them for greater risk of something called wheezing. We don't technically diagnose asthma in a child until the, they're the age of two, okay. um, but sometimes infants um, and younger children will come in having that wheezing sound because their airways are really inflamed, from a, usually from a cold, and um, a, a, an infant's airway shouldn't inflame from a cold. And so there's something that's triggering their airways to be more sensitive, more reactive. Um, and we think that air pollution is one of those triggers that places children for higher risk for things like wheezing. Indeed. Thank you for that explanation. And Juanita, I want to go back to you here. Can you tell us a little bit about how have climate patterns and trends changed over the past few decades, and what scientific evidence supports the conclusion that these changes are indeed linked to human activity? And, and then why does the velocity of climate change seem to be speeding up mightily lately? Yeah, all great questions, Bernice. Thank you. You already gave us a pretty good introduction to how trends are changing. We're seeing more extreme heat waves, wildfires, droughts, and floods. We're seeing sea levels rise. Importantly, we're seeing animals and plants move around to more northern areas, to higher areas, trying to escape the heat. If they can't, they go extinct locally. We're even seeing people move around because conditions in their home countries or even just in their home states within the United States are getting too severe. So we know from many, many lines of evidence that this is related to human activities and specifically burning fossil fuels. That's the the biggest contributor. These include observations of present-day and recent historical events, geological and biological evidence of changes that happened thousands or millions of years ago, so things like ice cores and fossilized algae, and advanced computer modeling that helps us both assess what's happened recently and what we might expect in the future. As far as why things are speeding up faster than what scientists anticipated, some of it may be that our models were missing something. We know that climate impacts can reinforce each other, can make each other worse. Those are called feedback loops. And so some of our models might not be very good at capturing those. But we also know that carbon pollution, the main contributor to climate change, keeps on increasing despite the world's efforts to reduce it. And right now, we're seeing the combination of that climate-changing pollution with a natural phenomenon called El Nino. So El Nino is a cycle that happens every few years, and when it happens, it releases vast amounts of heat that are stored in the Pacific Ocean. So we're getting this collision right now of human-caused climate change with this natural cycle. And it's probably the main reason why this summer was so hot in the U.S. and across the world. And, and again, that is that was, you think, a combination of El Nino as well as just the, the warming climate. That's correct. Yeah. And there may be some other factors at play right. as well. Some scientists think that a volcano that erupted may be contributing. There may be some other pollution reasons. But those are probably the two biggest factors for why this summer in particular has been so brutal. Indeed. And I want to unpack something you just mentioned as well. Uh, and have you go back and explain it a little bit more. And that was the concept of the feedback loops in the context of climate change. 
And are there potential tipping points that have crossed could lead to irreversible consequences? Sure. So I'm not a climate scientist, so I'm going to give a little bit of an analogy mm-hmm. for what a feedback loop is. So in general, it's a vicious cycle where one negative thing leads to another negative thing that then reinforces the first negative thing. So an example from sort of everyday life is let's say someone is having trouble paying their bills because they can't find work. And then they end up relying on a credit card with really high interest rate. And that makes it even harder to pay their bills and wrecks their credit rating. But a lot of employers check credit rating before they hire someone. So they see this bad credit rating and they don't hire the person. And that's a perfect example of a feedback loop. We see various versions of of that happening in our global climate system all the time. As far as irreversible impacts go, the thing that I'd rather people focus on is what we can change. Every tenth of a degree matters. Every tenth of a a ton of carbon pollution matters. And unless we work on even making those incremental changes, we're not going to keep ourselves safe. It doesn't, we don't have to get to a tipping point for climate change to be deadly. So we really need to be emphasizing what we can change now. Um, And Lisa, I want to talk to you about some of the mental health implications associated with climate change. Uh, and various environmental changes, and and how are they affecting public health, as well as how they're affecting ordinary people in their everyday lives. And, and that's, I've learned in the four years of doing this show, that mental health is one of those often overlooked components of the health impact of climate change. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? I think mental health is often uh, under-resourced broadly, whether we're talking about climate change or not, and, and access to mental health typically happens. Um, it makes it easier for those with wealth or privilege to be accessing it when we know that there's a mental health crisis. The American Academy of Pediatrics has actually declared uh, a, a national emergency in terms of the mental health of our youth because we don't have um, enough services for, for the, the scale of the problem that we're seeing In a very concrete way, I I worked with a school psychologist in Sonoma. Um, They have had repeated wildfires there, and she was describing how the kids there will will cry and have panic attacks when they so much as see smoke in the sky. Those repeated displacements have been so traumatizing. Uh, We understand that kids in particular do their best when they are in stable, nurturing environments to thrive and what climate change threatens to do um, is to destabilize um, a kid's home today and into the future. And that is hugely stressful, just from what we've seen in terms of the wildfires here with families having to be displaced and then they're in interim housing or have struggled to find housing, their communities get torn apart. These are situations that, that are breeding ground um, for mental health illness and we don't have enough resources really to address them. And there, there have been studies for kids that came out of Hurricane Katrina that show what the ongoing impacts have been on those children in terms of systems of things like PTSD, anxiety, and depression. Um, There's a whole new vocabulary that that has evolved to describe what the mental health impacts of climate change are. And uh, it's things like eco-anxiety and solastasia. You know, one of the things that I often like to say is that I don't think those of us that suffer from anxiety about the future of our world are the crazy ones. It feels a little more crazy to me to turn the newspaper and see that half of Pakistan is underwater and then just flip to the next page. <laughs> like That, to me, is the abnormal response. Um, and those of us who are, are experiencing real distress and anxiety 
um, have ever reason to feel concerned. And so how do we address it? I, I think we we understand, especially from surveys with the youth, that there are an increasing number of youth in particular that are suffering from these various uh, types of eco-distress, eco-anxiety, solastasia. And so there's a whole evolving field. Uh, the Climate Psychiatry Alliance, I think, has been one of the leaders to help uh, develop what some of these resources are and get more um, psychiatrists. There's a lot of work amongst psychologists as well to help develop this type of literature, this vocabulary, so that we can better treat the population for it. Thank you for that. That's interesting. And you mentioned eco-anxiety, and there was another term you used. Solastasia, um, which is a sadness for uh, the, the world that we're losing. Interesting, interesting. Uh, we're going to go to break now. And on the other side of the break, though, I just have just one other thing I want to unpack with you about something that you said. So we'll be right back on the other side with Dr. Lisa Patel, uh, Executive Director of the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, and Juanita Constable with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you all. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to today's show on climate change, focusing in on how is climate change changing our everyday lives and our health. And we are back with Dr. Lisa Patel with the Stanford School of Medicine and the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, and with Juanita Constable with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Again, thank you, ladies, for being with us today. And Lisa, right before the break, we, you were talking about the mental health implications associated with climate change. And I know that your area is pediatrics, but I, as you were talking and explaining that, it, it comes to mind that there has to be perhaps a significant impact also on the elderly in terms of mental health. I think what I, and again, I'm, I'm not pulling from data here because I don't know the data very well on adult population and, and episodes of eco-anxiety, um, but what, what I will say, and one of the things that I talk about in terms of uh, addressing eco-anxiety at scale for all of us that are part of the movement, is I think a lot of youth eco-anxiety is driven by the idea that um, they are being left to handle all these problems that were not of their making. And so what I often tell, you know, my generation and above is that if we want to treat uh, the youth's eco-anxiety, we ourselves need to be really vocal activists because we are in this problem because we have left them um, with problems that are going to be too hard for any one generation to handle on their own. So I look at this as from the numbers, my guess is, is that there are higher rates. And again, I'm just guessing here, I don't know the data for sure, that um, the youth have been studied more in terms of their eco-anxieties. And so we have a better characterization there. From, But from a lot of the health professionals I work with, I would say a significant number of us, and I will count myself um, as one of those, do suffer some, from some degree of eco-anxiety. And my treatment is activism for myself um, and to help the youth that, that um, are suffering from eco-anxiety as well. Indeed, I'm going to remember that I like that. When when I hear someone say I have eco-anxiety or mention that, say the treatment is activism. <laughs> Love it. Thank yeah. you for that. Um, Juanita, what are some of the most significant health impacts of climate change that you've observed in your work there with the NRDC? Sure. So heat is one of the ones I'm most concerned about. I work regularly with worker populations that are indoor and outdoor workers 
who aren't getting water breaks on the job, who are working ridiculous hours at really fast paces, and who are fainting on their feet, who are seeing their colleagues pass out, who have lost colleagues. A farm worker in North Carolina just died a couple weeks ago because of extreme heat. So this is what I'm really worried about. And it's not just the immediate impact of heat on our bodies that concerns me. It's the fact that heat affects everything we depend on for our health and well-being. It affects our food and water supplies. It uh, affects our infrastructure. Even our electronics are uh, susceptible to heat breakdown. If anyone's ever left an iPhone in a hot car, they know that. And unfortunately, the world is going to keep getting hotter for at least a couple of decades, even if we're successful in significantly reducing the pollution that causes climate change. There's a new study just out this morning that I didn't have a chance to read yet that suggests some parts of the world could become unlivable, even for healthy uh, people, because it's going to get too hot and humid. So that's one of the ones I'm worried about the most. When it comes to other health impacts, this one is, is an indirect one, but climate change affects our personal finances in so many ways. And not having enough money is, for better or for worse, a huge determinant of our health, as is stress about not having enough money. <laughs> so climate change affects our take-home pay. It affects the value of our homes. It uh, affects our ability to access funds and services in the wake of a disaster. It affects how much we pay for basic necessities like electricity and healthcare. So there's a lot of ways that climate change can pinch our wallet and affect our ability to take care of ourselves when things get really serious. And all of those things you just talked about, I have to think, drive anxiety. Maybe oh, that absolutely. feedback loop, what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. And, and you mentioned a couple of things I want to uh, dig into. And you were mentioning uh, about the, the heat's effect on our electronics. Uh, iPhone, I imagine at some point, even computers. Maybe they're going to have to put labels, start putting labels uh, on those. You know, like a little white label you'll see sometimes on the electric cords. Do not leave in the car. Or do not let it get exposed to, to heat above a certain degree. But Juanita, and I know that you probably work on this, and that is how can we better prepare our communities for the health risk, or for some of the health risk anyway, associated with the everywhere extreme weather events caused by climate change? Yeah, so there's so many things that need to be done. Um, I'm going to focus on heat because that's what I know best. But on my wish list are making sure that workers are safe at work when they're working in the heat. That goes for indoor and outdoor workers. Making sure our homes are as climate resilient as possible, so better energy efficiency, hopefully solar panels on our roofs, uh, not about to flood every two months. So there's a lot that goes into that. Making sure people can pay their electricity bills. So we've seen time after time that a significant number of people die indoors during heat waves because they can't run their air conditioning, they can't afford to uh, keep it on, or they have deal with food spoilage or other issues associated with um, having their electricity turned off in the middle of a heat wave. So making sure that that's just sort of a basic right and availability to people. And really importantly, addressing shade inequity. So we know from study after study that lower income households and households of color are disproportionately in the hottest parts of cities 
largely because they don't have the same kind of shade as their whiter, wealthier neighbors. And that's a, an accumulation of decades of his systemic and uh, institutional policies that have um, put those people in harm's way. So those are kind of on my top list, but there's a lot of other things we can do to protect people's health. Uh, Lisa, a similar question, though, but in terms of the healthcare system, and that is how can we better prepare our healthcare systems to respond to the health risks associated with extreme weather events? And I have to think, Lisa, that some things are in place or are being talked about because they, the healthcare system many times sees this and knows this before the rest of us. You would think, Bernice, but actually. <laughs> I would. Um, okay. okay. A couple of years ago, we actually wrote uh, a paper for the New England Journal of Medicine, especially uh, precisely on the topic of heat system preparedness for healthcare systems. And what we learned from it was how little um, the healthcare systems were actually doing. Now, there was a lot of work, I feel like, that was happening by departments of public health, by community organizations. But I think that there is still a lot of work to link that to healthcare systems in particular. And so we're talking about, um, and the intellectual work is there. There's just the drawing the lines to get institutions to actually implement them. So whether it's protocols for how we deal with people coming in in mass uh, that are suffering from heat illness and heat stroke um, and how, how we need to be cooling their body temperatures immediately and what we need to be monitoring for them. Um, but the, the biggest thing, right, is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so how can hospital systems better partner with community organizations, Department of Public Health, to alert patients that could be more vulnerable during times of heat, to create buddy systems so that we're checking in with those communities, to create mobile vans, to be going around to provide hydration and care services um, so that we prevent the, the worst outcome really is that you want as few people flooding that healthcare system as possible. And there are plenty of things that we can be doing uh, during periods of heat waves where the health system has community dollars to leverage and should be doing a better job there. But I also you know, want to um, build off of what Juanita was saying. We talk about these solutions and what I'd really like, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom about climate change um, and, and how climate change is a bit of a toxic stressor that makes things like poverty, food insecurity, migration worse. But it's also a greatest opportunity to rebuild our cities and our systems in ways that promote health, cities that are greener with more green spaces where we can spend time, more time with neighbors and be in places where we are checking on, in on people naturally because we have these natural places to check in with one another, more active transportation or more public transportation to move around cities better, more public housing that has energy efficiency with mixed level housing um, so that people can live closer to where they uh, work or where they worship or where their kids go to school. All of these climate solutions are things that build thriving, healthy, connected communities, all those things that I felt like um, became really glaring problems during the pandemic that we have the opportunity when we think about climate change as our problem to fix. Then one last thing with you, Lisa, before we go to break, and that is, can you tell us a little bit about the, the purpose and the direction of the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, for which you're the executive director. What is your goal and the purposes and things that group is doing as it relates to climate yeah. change? You know, we um, we have grown really fast. And I, and I think when the organization first began, it was really to bring societies uh, around to understand that climate change is a health threat. Um, that was about seven years ago. And I think we no longer need to make that argument. I think the societies understand that it's a health threat. So the next big 
Um, what we're trying to accomplish is to bring our societies around a shared banner on what it is we're going to accomplish now that we've risen people's awareness that it's a health threat. Well, so what should our policy priorities be from there? And so what we're thinking about is choosing a sector, whether it's uh, clinics or schools, and start developing a comprehensive education and policy agenda around these places where we know that, the, that there's an opportunity for federal state level investment. We know that there's populations that are more vulnerable and we know what the impact can be uh, because we need to start creating some really concerted um, policy wins and dialogue um, to show people what these solutions are to this point that I think you started with is that climate change feels big, but some of these solutions are very tangible and have immediate health benefits. Indeed. Thank you, Lisa. We're going to go to break now and we'll be right back on the other side with Dr. Lisa Patel and Juanita Constable, who are making us much smarter today. Thank you. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years, non-mercury with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. And our other sponsor is the Weston A. Price Foundation, based on the research of nutrition pioneer Dr. Weston A. Price, whose studies established the parameters of human health and determine the optimum characteristics of human diets. The Weston A. Price Foundation is a member-supported organization dedicated to restoring nutrient-dense foods to the modern diet. Their annual conference is coming up October 20th through 22nd in Kansas City, and it's called Wise Traditions. For more information and to register, visit wisetraditions.org. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to a Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. To today's show on climate change, focusing on how is climate change changing our everyday lives and our health. And we are back with Dr. Lisa Patel with the Stanford School of Medicine and Juanita Constable with the Natural Resources Defense Council. And they are indeed making us smarter. So I want to go now to uh, Juanita. And talk about what you see or what you've experienced as some of the most promising policy solutions for mitigating the health impacts of climate change. Sure. So with infighting in Congress, it's easy to lose sight of all the good things they can accomplish. But one of the most promising solutions is actually underway right now. Uh, A lot of Americans don't realize that Congress has passed two major climate bills in the last couple of years, one called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and the other the Inflation Reduction Act. Those two That's because have, they, they don't have the word climate or change or environment in there. <laughs> that's exactly right. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about how badly those bills have been branded. <laughs> but they both really unleashed billions 
with a B, of federal dollars to make our homes and our transportation systems and our electric power plants and other sectors more climate-friendly and resilient. There's just two problems. One is that the money has to be spent very quickly. So households and local and state decision makers and companies need to move fast if they want to take advantage of the opportunity. And the other is that there is a contingent in Congress that's trying to block the benefits of those bills right now. But I think what we really need to focus on is if those investments are fully put into place, we will see a major reduction in the cost of clean energy, a major reduction in the cost in uh, the amount of climate pollution going into the air and opportunities to make ourselves safer when disaster does strike. And Juanita, I know that the NRDC really has a lot to do with climate change communication and communication of a lot of the environmental issues. So how do we do a better job of communicating these policies, these benefits to those two acts so that it, I guess it seeps in more to the nat- national conscience and, and to everyday people and the everyday lives because that's where the a lot of the change has to come from. How, how do we... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough question, Bernice. Like you mentioned at the top of this show, there are so many things going on in the world right now. It is It feels like a very big, scary place. I think part of it is just repetition. It's shows like this, bringing the news to people's ears. It's our local and state leaders, not just our federal leaders, saying, hey, here's how we're using this money to make our communities better. I'm really struck by how some governors are opting not to take the money because they want to score a political win. That feels like a missed opportunity in so many ways. But the biggest one is helping people just understand what's in these laws and how they can make a difference in their own lives. Yeah, and again, that is what we try to do here at Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And I do talk with a number of environmental and climate change communicators, colleagues, and, and, and often we kind of query or pick our own brains about how do you know if you're getting through? So I was with a group of probably about five folks uh, a, a few months back, and we the best we could come up with is that the fact that you're doing it <laughs> is is a win. Because we can't measure, you know, how impactful the communication is. So it's like just, like you said, kind of just keep doing it. So I can appreciate that. And I know that the uh, Nash, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council does that with a lot of the good information that they are, they are pushing out there. So thank you for that. On another front, though, Juanita, is there anything that we can or should be doing up front or preemptively to try to assure that our vulnerable populations are not so disproportionately affected by the health impacts of climate change. Yeah, so Lisa mentioned earlier this importance of having people be in community with one another. And that's one of the things I'd like to highlight here. So research from climate fuel disasters all over the country has consistently shown that strong social connections can help protect communities that look extremely vulnerable on paper. We saw this after Hurricane Katrina. We saw it after Hurricane Sandy. We saw it after Hurricane Harvey. And where funders and where local and state governments can help improve those social connections through a variety of means, I think we'll have much stronger and healthier communities as a result. So just one specific example, New York City has a program called Be a Buddy which basically works with community-based organizations to organize wellness checks during extreme weather. 
that sounds really simple, but we know that the, some of the most vulnerable people during a heat wave are people who live by themselves, who don't maybe get out of the house because they're disabled or elderly. And having that simple thing of just a neighbor saying, are you okay? What do you need? Is so powerful, especially after disaster. You know, I wonder too, most localities have some, well, not most, but many, like Washington, D.C., and probably the northern cities, have protocols in place when the weatherman tells them that a freeze is coming. You know, they, they'll, I, I've seen them go and have big dump trucks of sand, and they put it on the side of the highway so that other trucks can come and spread it on the highways and things like that. But And, and many other things they have established written protocols for that type of weather event. And I have to wonder, are there any such protocols for heat? I heard Lisa mention something earlier that uh, really perked my mind, and that was like maybe roving trucks with water or whatever. Uh, anything like that that's going on? Yes, and they vary a lot in quality. I think one thing that's important to remember about heat is that emergency response is super important, but we also have to do the longer-term, more proactive things to cool down our neighborhoods on the front end, and that includes things like the shade that I mentioned earlier, it includes um, building codes to make sure that when new homes are built, they aren't going to wilt in a heat wave and a combined power outage. So uh, yes to both of those things. And the other thing before I leave, Elise, I want to talk about, you, you, you described it, but it's what we call climate refugees. They are here and among us. But seldom do you hear that term used in the public squares. And I know that Natural Resources Defense Council must have done some work in, in that area. You talked us a little bit about climate refugees. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Bernice. One thing that we're already seeing, like I mentioned near the top of the episode, was that people are starting to move around because of climate change. That's happening across national borders, but it's also happening within our borders in the U.S. For example, in a lot of southeastern communities, people are having to leave their family, their childhood home because they're repeatedly flooding. We're seeing people decide to leave the West because the wildfire smoke is just getting to be too much. The problem is, as the climate changes, no place will be truly safe. So in addition to helping people make these decisions about voluntarily relocating Essentially, we have to help people find a way to shelter in place and be safe where they are. And, and Lisa, what are you seeing are your discussions about climate refugees? Yeah, I mean, the, I think it's funny to say the migration has begun. And I think that the estimates um, just internally in the United States is somewhere in the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people that are already moving um, that may not themselves label themselves as climate migra- migrants, but mm-hmm. it, they are moving because of climatic conditions that make it no longer to be viable where they are, whether it's extreme dre- heat, uh, drought or repeated flooding events or worsening wildfires that are destroying their communities. This problem only stands to get worse, and we know that when these big fluxes of population happen, they are very stressful and destabilizing um, for the new places that, that they move in, in terms of housing and resources. So uh, how we move these populations, how we build our cities to be able to absorb new populations as they come in, uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. I have to think, too, that some of the immigration and migrant issues that the U.S. has experienced at the southern border 
could be the result of a, what you said earlier, Juanita, a feedback loop with climate change. You know, people, the, the, on the surface, it's about poverty, but that poverty came about in some kind of way. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Climate change is an amplifier of all the problems that already existed, whether it be poverty, whether it be geopolitical conflict. It makes all the bad things worse. And we have to understand that connection to truly address whatever it is, the other problem that we're going to fix. I mean, there's been suggestions that any of the strides we've made towards improving global health and reducing poverty levels, those are undercut by the effects of climate change. So it's all connected. Indeed, indeed. And we just have a couple of minutes to go. Lisa, last thing for you, what can individuals do uh, to advocate for policies that address the health impacts of climate change? And what can everyday folks in their everyday lives do to help protect themselves from some of the health impacts of climate change? People often ask me, what is the most impactful thing you can do for climate change? And my first, second, and third answer is to vote, uh, to get other people in your network to vote, and to join uh, voter banks to get people encouraged not to vote. And again, not to take any political stances on who it is you're voting for, but just to exercise your right to vote. Climate change is an upstream problem. We were in this situation because of the policies that have made fossil fuel pollution um, easier to burn and have given fossil fuel companies a social license to pollute our planet. And it isn't until we exercise our right to vote um, and change the decision makers in power that we are going to make any substantive headway in terms of creating the policies that we need. Indeed. So vote, vote, vote. Thank you. Last, last thing, Juanita, what's the most impactful things that people can do? <laughs> Put some money away, create an emergency fund. Um, there's actually a great group called saverlife.org that I would point to that can help folks who are struggling to save some money to do that. Good deal. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you both of you all for being with us today. We have been with Dr. Lisa Patel with the Stanford School of Medicine and Juanita Constable with the Natural Resources Defense Council. And they indeed have made us smarter today. Thank you, ladies. We really appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, in your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you and join us again next week for more Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio as we continue our conversation on climate change and listen to any of our past shows on podcasts wherever you get yours. Thank you. Thank you.